This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today, very, very timely. Uh, we had some cybersecurity experts, and we have a, a report of another large-scale attack, so a very timely conversation with a, a great panel of experts on that. Uh, but Professor Siegel, before we get to them, uh, S&P, just a few percent from all-time highs. We got the new budget proposal from from Biden. What are you watching going into this long Memorial Day weekend? Yeah, well, uh, Jeremy, actually, the S&P is right now less than one half of one percent from its all-time high. So uh, that's how, uh, you know, that's how close it is. So uh, we did get some data this, uh, this morning, I think, uh, should be commented on. Um, you know, the PCE deflator is what the Fed watches. The, 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 but the fact is that once we get the CPI and the PPI, producer price index and the consumer, we know 90%. So it's rarely a surprise. Even then, it was on the firm side of expectations, um, particularly caught me, uh, my, my eye. Um, was actually the uh, trade report, which came in at a deficit much lower than expected. Now, the import of that is that that means that uh, second quarter GDP uh, is apt to be even stronger than uh, we initially thought. Uh, one of my four favorite forecasters, IHS, has now uh, raised their second quarter estimate of GDP growth all the way to 12%. Now, that's an annualized basis, so that means it's about 3% quarterly. But that actually is 3% quarterly virtually brings us up to the real GDP uh, trend that we were in pre-COVID. Um, and you know, we still have <laughs> um, uh, millions of workers that haven't uh, come on board. Now, next week, uh, what's important, um, again, we'll have some price components when uh, the uh, ISM data comes out on manufacturing and service. But of course, it is employment week. And after the big disappointment last month, everyone will be looking at it. Early estimates are 600,000. Um, what is interesting is a lower number is actually probably more inflationary. Normally, you think of strong economic payroll numbers as being inflationary because more people are being hired. But it means that more people are staying away. The supply is going to be more constrained, and the demand being there from all that liquidity is going to put even greater pressure on prices. So. 
Uh, we're going to be watching that number, obviously, and uh, next week when we're on, uh, certainly we'll we'll discuss those uh, those employment numbers. I know you're 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 watching the Fed comments very closely. You had a bunch of different people come out and start talking about talking about tapering. <laughs> any uh, any surprises or? Anybody? Yeah, I mean they've got to. You know we they're you know that. Um, uh, by the way, let me, let me just mention that the core year on year, uh, number, uh, that, uh, came out this morning. Let me actually just give you that exact number, uh, that I had year over year core deflator 3.1% is the highest in nearly 30 years. Now, you know, let me, and that, and that's that is the core the core PCEs of what the Fed looks at. Now we we do know that this is a year from a year ago at the depths, but there have been other plunges of prices in those thirty years, and none of them have been followed by a year to year number that is this big. I mean, I do, as you know, my my feeling is is this inflation is going to be much more persistent. The Fed is going to try to explain it away, but we're going to see with the PPI and the CPI if they. You know, if they blow out expectations the way the last month did, uh, then then they have to start talking about it. But then again, the money is out there. They're just talking about putting it more less in at a lower rate. I mean, my feeling is, is all that money and liquidity, as I've said many times, is eventually going to produce a price level that's nearly 20 percent higher in several years than what we have uh, right now. And um uh, you know, wage front inflation is going to be extremely high, as well as uh, price inflation. They'll move together in a very strong economy with big productivity growth. Any other things you're watching as uh, you think about the, the second half of the year? Well, I, I do think, you know, talking about legislation and, and uh, I, I do think there's going to be an infrastructure bill. Uh, where the Republicans are, you know, they're, they're going to buy enough. Republicans need want money in their districts, too, in their state for bridges and roads and all that. So I think they're going to come. There will be no tax increase. The tax will be later this year with a reconciliation and some of the uh, infrastructure Republicans don't want. Um, uh, you know, this has been my position for months. And uh, actually, as I as I look through the political landscape it seems to be more and more moving in that direction not a slam dunk clearly but uh you know that there will be an infrastructure bill that will be bipartisan um and then there will be a further quote spending bill with the big tax cuts that will not be bipartisan and will pass 5150 by reconciliation uh on the senate but that will come later um this year. Very good, Professor. Thanks. Have a very good Memorial Day weekend. Thank you, you too, and uh, we'll see you next week talking about uh, the employment report. Thank you. We'll, we'll talk again. Now bring in my, my great panel of cybersecurity experts on a day. We have this report of another hack from a group similar to the one behind the solar winds attack. We had the issue with the pipeline that was hacked and shut down oil supplies for a good segment of our country. Um, so let me bring in Bob Blakely, an operating partner, a teammate, a venture capital firm specialized in cybersecurity, data, fintech, 
Uh, teammates of Group Wisdom Trees worked with in a collaborative fashion to launch a cybersecurity index. We have Brian Dumphy, who is Vice President and Product Management for Clarity, an industrial cybersecurity firm, uh, and Dave Yates, who's Chief Information Officer at Wisdom Tree, to help me guide the conversation much closer to the details of all these issues. Um, Bob, maybe before we, you, we could get into all these, you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, to help establish our, our expertise in cybersecurity here. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, thanks very much, Jeremy, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. So I'm an operating partner at Team 8. Before I joined Team 8 about a year ago, I was the global head of security innovation at Citibank. Before that, I ran the identity and privacy service at Gartner, and before that, for 17 years, I was a uh, security technologist at IBM, uh, where I ended up as the uh, chief scientist for security and privacy. So I've been uh, in the security business in various different capacities for quite a while. Very good. Thank you. Brian, what about yourself at Clarity? Tell us a little bit about what, what Clarity does as industrial cybersecurity experts. Yeah, absolutely. So Clarity is all about building security products to help companies with industrial control systems to ultimately have the visibility to protect them. And so we're in the business of keeping them safe, uh, protecting them from advanced threats, uh, and, and helping helping ultimately keep the, the gas on for all of us as consumers. Now, now, Dave, you look at a lot of our technology issues. I know we were just talking about what was happening today before we get into the much longer conversation on the colonial pipeline. What you want to talk about the, the current events today? What, what what's happening? Yeah, so the interesting thing today was that Microsoft reported another attack by what they're saying is the same group that launched the SolarWinds attack earlier this year, a group called Nobelium, which I think is a Russian state uh, group. Uh, and the interesting thing, at least for me, is that they seem to be attacking using companies' own technology partners to uh, actually infiltrate and attack the firm. So in the SolarWinds case, as listeners may have heard, uh, they use SolarWinds software, which is used to monitor systems for government uh, organizations. Lots of companies use it. Uh, and they actually injected the malware into the software and then got it distributed to all those companies and organizations. In this case, it looks like the, the same group has taken over an email marketing account used by USAID, obviously a trusted NGO and a government organization, uh, and then sent emails from that account to a whole bunch of other orgs, which then are more likely to trust that email coming from someone that they, they know. Uh, so I don't know the full impact of it yet, but it's kind of an interesting situation where this group is, is almost using tools uh, against organizations and companies, uh, which they may not expect and they're not looking for, companies not looking for. Bob, we're going to focus mostly on Colonial, but do you want to add anything on, on top of this conversation here before before we turn to the Colonial situation? Uh, I, I don't really have a lot to add. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's entirely to be expected uh, that there would have been follow-ons uh, to the solar winds attacks. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the adversaries uh, are, uh, are smart, but uh, they're also lazy. They don't do work that they need to do. So once they find a successful uh, attack vector, they tend to reuse it until effective countermeasures are put in place. So I think uh, everyone should have been and was expecting, uh, you know, more uh, of these sort of supply chain uh, style attacks to emerge and to emerge specifically from this group, which has obviously had a, an experience of success. 
Brian, so let's turn to you. Um, maybe as, as somebody close to these industrial firms, uh, maybe can you describe to us what happened in as simple terms as possible with the Colonial Pipeline and that ransomware and, and, and how they got breached? Yeah, yeah, of course. The So Colonial Pipeline, uh, East Coast's largest gasoline, diesel, natural gas distributor, they were targeted by a threat actor uh, referred to as DarkSide. So DarkSide is a cybercrime gang operating out of Russia. This gang was able to gain access to their, their IT environment uh, and effectively installed ransomware. So ransomware is basically malicious software that's being installed on their systems uh, and ultimately encrypts everything. It locks them out of their systems and, and basically says, pay us to unlock it. Uh, one of the colonial employees came in one morning and their screen had a ransom note uh, with a uh, you've been locked, uh, pay X Bitcoin to unlock it. Now, in this specific case, the industrial systems, the actual control systems that control the pipeline did not appear to be breached. Uh, now, Colonial took the control systems responsible for the pipeline offline because they're trying to contain the breach. They're trying to keep the attacker from moving from their IT systems to their control systems. Uh, and that and that shutdown of the pipeline ultimately resulted in, in, the, in the fuel distribution that we all experienced. So, look, I, I live in Virginia. Uh, I saw these impacts firsthand, uh, long lines at the gas station. I found myself searching for gas. So it was a direct impact to, to m many, many people on the East Coast. Um, we don't know exactly how Dark, uh, DarkSide got initial access to their network. The, the, a really common way to do that is through a phishing attack. And so a phishing attack is more of an email that gets sent to you. Uh, it, it tricks you into, into clicking on a link, which could compromise your system. And ultimately, it takes one system for one, one employee to click on that link to, to, for that attacker group to gain access. Uh, sort of springboarding back to, that, to the USAID co uh, conversation earlier, so, so instead of receiving an email from someone outside that's tricking you, what that attack is enabling you to do is taking someone that's in a position of trust, uh, emailing uh, back to their organization. So you're even more likely to click on that link and be taken advantage of. Now, there's a lot of issues with this ransomware. Do you pay the Bitcoin? It's a whole, whole set of threads. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, Bob, what, do you, anything you think they could have done what they did right, what they could have done more effective? So uh, we don't know actually a great deal about what they did because they haven't uh, described publicly the details of their response. But the two things that they definitely did right, and these are the two things that it's most critical to get right, are they called law enforcement and they called Mandiant. Right. So uh, you don't want to uh, you don't want to engage in a response like this without being side by side with law enforcement investigative authorities. And you also uh, if don't, uh, you probably don't have the right expertise in-house to respond uh, to an incident like this. So it, it, there are a number of organizations out there that specialize in incident response. Uh, Mandiant is one of them. Uh, and it's always a good idea to involve the professionals immediately because you can actually damage your own systems and also screw up in other ways uh, if you don't execute the response in, in a professional and appropriate way. So uh, I'm, if, I, I don't want to try to give uh, advice uh, to Colonial, uh, particularly, uh, you know, not being in possession of the facts. Uh, but I think, you know, the other thing that I would say uh, that they probably did well is, uh, is just what Brian has described. 
uh, they took some precautions uh, to make sure that there wasn't going to be further damage before they restarted their systems. And that's, that is entirely a responsible thing to do because you don't know, uh, you know, whether the threat actors have, you know, planted little surprises uh, to complicate your response and, and maybe your life uh, during the response. Yeah, maybe I could ask this one follow-up question. I mean, we obviously don't know the details in this situation, but is it likely that the, the threat actor was in their network for a while and could have been trying to figure out how to do the most damage? Or is this was this a, a, a quick hit and they encrypted stuff and then got out? Like, what's typically the way these things work? Yeah, it's, it's quite unlikely that it was, you know, a quick hit, right? So particularly uh, with DarkSide, the way their system works is DarkSide produces the malware platform, uh, but their customers who are other criminal organizations are the ones who conduct the uh, the initial breach of the target and then use the dark side platform to conduct their ransomware activities. So it is, and and that's conducted, uh, you know, in a in a way that's not completely manual, but it is uh, a manual process assisted by the dark side tools. So it is essentially certain that what happened here was that an affiliate uh, using uh, DarkSide had conducted surveillance uh, on Colonial. Uh, usually they uh, they conduct a variety of different kinds of research, including uh, research into your ability to pay and how much they think they can get out of you based on you know revenues and, and various other things. Uh, and then also uh, did a technical surveillance to find a vulnerability that they could exploit. And uh, probably after the initial exploitation, they uh, prepared for a while to make sure that when the attack was executed, uh, it did as much damage as possible to increase uh, the probability that the, the victim would pay. So it's very likely uh, that the initial breach was you know, significantly before the, the ransom demand was delivered uh, and that the adversary was in the network for a while. And, and that's one of the things that Colonial staff and that Mandiant will still be investigating now uh, to find out, you know, when it started, what exactly was compromised, whether it is now uh, completely cleaned up, and and so on. No, that's, you... that's, that's a great point. The the other thing that seems interesting to me, and I'm not sure it was it was true in this case, was the rise of, I think it's called double extortion ransomware. So. They'll take a copy of the files once they're in the network, and, and to your point, uh, Bob, they might have been there for a while before, so they have time to copy everything out. Then they encrypt it, and then they basically say, pay us the Bitcoin, you can't decrypt your files, and or will expose your files online so everyone can see them. Are you seeing that as a, like, is that more and more of a threat these days? I don't know if that was the case for Colonial, but it, it sounds to me, or almost more devastating, especially when I think in a wisdom tree context, we wouldn't want our files out there, even if we had backups that were encrypted. Yeah, I think, you know, this this sort of started, uh, or at least came into the public consciousness uh, during the Sony Pictures Entertainment case, right, when the, uh, the uh, North Korean uh, threat actor not only locked up a bunch of the Sony uh, IT systems, but also uh, released a bunch of internal emails, which were uh, which were quite uh, embarrassing, and then also actually released the you know the video files of some unreleased movies in order to damage Sony's business. So uh, I think 
you know, if you're if you're a smart uh, adversary, you're watching that and you're thinking, okay, you know, there's a profit opportunity in this, and and uh, it has uh, indeed <clears throat> uh, become uh, more prevalent over the last couple of years. You know, the 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 two different uh, vectors, right? Get your systems back and and uh, and uh, keep your secrets uh, uh, secret. So uh, yeah, that is that is very much the trend. Let me reintroduce our, our panel here. We've got Bob Blakely, who's a operating partner, a teammate, venture capital firm focused on cybersecurity. Brian Dumphy, who's vice president of product management at Clarity, an industrial cybersecurity firm, deviates CIO at Wisdom Tree. Um, Brian, let me come back to you. When you think about this from from your client's perspective, what's the you know you get this ransomware, you got to pay to get your things. Do people worry that if they pay, they still may not get their their systems unlocked. How do you think about navigating these situations with these unknown right. criminals? Well, that, that payment that payment question is is a very controversial uh, question in, in the in the industry. Uh, uh, the in this particular case, the the CEO did uh, to publicly stated that they did disclose that they paid the four point four million dollars to the to the attacker um, uh, within the first day. Uh, reportedly, reportedly uh, in coordination and collaboration with law enforcement. Um, a lot of people second guess that, um, and and the the rationale is the more you pay, the more you're encouraging uh, uh, future uh, ransoms, and you're also inspiring others to to take up take up uh, uh, arms uh, in, in in this ransomware attack uh, pattern. Um, look, the, the the reality is that it is super easy to say uh, that other businesses shouldn't pay. Uh, it's a much much harder decision when your business is on the line. Uh, the fact that the much of the East Coast is depending on the fuel from your business makes those stakes even higher. Uh, look, the reality is that the disruption would have been much, much longer, uh, much larger impact if they had chosen not to pay. Uh, and so, look, it's a very hard decision. It's very case by case. We don't know all the facts, uh, as Bob suggested. We don't know how good of backups they had. We don't know what systems were were actually impacted. What information was 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 uh, in in uh, uh, or had been taken offline for extortion. Uh, so a lot, a lot of factors there, but it's it's uh, easy to second guess it. But uh, I think we we can go in knowing that the impact would have been would have been a much longer impact if they had not paid. I want to ask Dave on the Bitcoin element. Um, you know, you, you focus a little bit on technology issues, and there's this narrative that Bitcoin is the the way people are being requested. This is, it, and then there's some commentary like, is it really like uh, for the criminals? Is it really the way that they can't be tracked? Or like, is Bitcoin easily trackable? I, I, Bob obviously has some, some background at City. Maybe you could comment on this issue too. But is, is do you think Bitcoin's facilitating more of this? It would have happened anyways, and the people would just find out how to make the payments in an unmarked bag with dollar bills <laughs> instead of Bitcoin. Well, I think Bitcoin obviously makes it easier remotely to do this, and. I think initially when Bitcoin was first launched, people thought it was untraceable and it's very hard to find out uh, where the money's going to and from. Uh, firms these days are getting into a lot more sophisticated analytics of the on-chain transactions. So being able to find uh, and decipher where money, where Bitcoin and values going to and from is a lot easier now than it was before. And it's definitely not anonymous. Uh, there are other coins. I think Monero is maybe, another, maybe one where you, it's more anonymous. So the, the IDs of the users transacting are not shown on the blockchain and they're kind of uh, obfuscated. 
those are probably more likely to rise in popularity with these gangs, I would think, because there's more protections uh, to their identity than there is in Bitcoin. But even so, Bitcoin's still fairly difficult to track. I know, Bob, you would add to that. <clears throat> well, it's it's difficult to track quickly. Uh, the thing about Bitcoin and all other cryptocurrencies is that all of the transactions take place on a public ledger where everything is retained forever. <clears throat> so uh, if new investigative techniques are developed, and they're being developed all the time, obviously, uh, people will go back and examine chains of transactions that involved criminal activity and will try to track you down, right? So I think uh, in, in general, you should assume that stuff that happens on the internet uh, is eventually going to come to light. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the reason that cryptocurrency is used today is not so much because it's untraceable. It's because there isn't a, a robust infrastructure in place uh, to sanction and take down the entities that are facilitating the movement of funds and uh, you can operate the system from jurisdictions which are uh, either unconcerned uh, about this kind of criminal activity or or are facilitating it, right? And, and so I think the jurisdictional issues and and the fact that there you know that there isn't there's you know so there's a lot of risk in having your national bank being shut out of the international payments infrastructure, right? But there's almost no risk in having your Bitcoin servers be shut out from the rest of the world, right? And it's quite difficult to do that because they're designed to be robust to that. So I think, you know, people who, who operate under the assumption that this is completely untraceable might want to be really careful about what jurisdictions they plan their vacations in. Um, but uh, but there are still valid reasons uh, to uh, to use cryptocurrencies for this kind of criminal activity. Let me go back to Brian. Um, Brian, tell us a little bit more about Clarity's businesses. And are, are, is Colonial the type of client that would be using Clarity's systems? Yeah, so in full, full disclosure, uh, uh, Colonial is not a customer of, of Clarity. Uh, but we do we do protect companies just like uh, like Colonial. Uh, so we're in, we're in the business of, again, uh, building industrial purpose-built uh, uh, security uh, technologies to protect uh, companies and specifically their their industrial control systems, like their pipeline control systems. Uh, so we we focus on a wide variety of businesses ranging from commercial, uh, power and energy, water pipelines. Uh, we have we have several dozen uh, companies that are customers of our that are in the pipeline business. Uh, and so again, we're building those those control systems, uh, those protection systems to give customers the visibility they need, so they know what's actually on the network, what's vulnerable. Uh, give them the insight they need to be able to per to figure out what steps they need to do to protect it. Uh, we also give them uh, the ability to start to implement more network segmentation uh, controls, so they can actually become very precise about what what the attacker could or could not target on the industrial side, which really limits the ability for the attacker to move from a from a traditional IT side of the house to the to the industrial side. Uh, look, and again, speculation based on what we all reading on the colonial side, uh, if, if they had very precise uh, controls in place between the IT and the OT side, they may not have had to resort to shutting off that connection. And they may have had more confidence that their controls were, were sufficient to protect uh, from the, the attacker from moving into the industrial side. Again, we don't, we don't know what controls were in place, but 
but again, ultimately, we're trying to help uh, help companies put those controls in place uh, so they can be protected. So if and when their IT side of the network is breached, it can control it and limit the impact to their to their crit- their most critical business assets. So, Brian, just following up on that, if from from an attacker's perspective and knowing what you know about defending the industrial side of the house, what are some of the ways? the kind of nation state actors would actually go after some of your clients? Like, what are the things that they try and do? It's not that it's a simple email phishing that someone clicks on their PC. There must be different ways of getting at those industrial systems. I'm just interested, what are some of the things they would try and do? Well, to be, on- to be honest, it, it often starts on the IT side. Uh, so just like what we saw on the colonial side, ra- rarely are those t- attacks going in directly to the industrial side. So they'll go, they're going to go after the, the IT side. There's a lot more people willing to click emails uh, on right. the IT side. Right. And so they're going to they're going to land. They're going to get access to a first system and then they're going to expand. Uh, they're going to take advantage of that system. Uh, take the next thing you know, they have access to two systems, four systems, six systems. Uh, and, and really, their attempt is to move laterally within the environment. Ultimately, finding and finding those connections that, oh, this system now is a system of trust that has access to the industrial, and then they'll, they'll jump the bridge into the industrial side. Uh, so, 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 again, it, it often starts in the, on the IT side. Again, the more controls you have in place uh, between your, your IT and the OT side, the better, the more protected. Now, if we rewind the clock five years ago, there were very little connections between the IT and the OT, and the OT network's sort of lived in a nice little island. Uh, but as, as companies have started to modernize their, their, their systems, uh, the, those interconnects are really becoming more and more frequent, which allows that uh, traversal, that traverse from the IT into the industrial. Now, again, this is where Clarity helps. Clarity can provide visibility uh, to the, the, the types of communications that are occurring between the OT infrastructure and the IT, which then allows the the uh, the, the the people who are implementing the security within the environment to become very precise, implement effectively a zero trust uh, set of connections, which really limits that, uh, that, that movement from the IT to the OT uh, side. We also are helping companies find the vulnerabilities that exist in the OT side, most of which they had no idea on. Uh, and so that, because of that island effect, there, there's been a lot of uh, hey, it's on a separate island. We don't have to worry about it. We don't need to pay attention to it. But again, as that island is getting closer and closer, more and more connected, uh, those vulnerabilities that may have existed for 10 years in many cases are becoming more and more exploitable. Uh, and so being able to help companies understand those vulnerabilities so they can start to take action to fix it, implement better controls, both of those are critical things that Clarity helps uh, companies do to avoid putting themselves in a situation where they have to shut the whole thing down in the event of an IT attack. Yeah, no, that, 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 yeah, that's, it sounds like, I mean, especially some of the systems on the industrial side have been around, I imagine, for a long time, or well, longer than the average yeah. IT system. Yeah. They weren't built with security in mind. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to retrofit that, I imagine. You're, you're really looking to isolate it. Well, and in the, in the security world, there's always been the sort of confidentiality, confidentiality integrity, availability, through your th- those three key elements. Uh, in the IT side, that confidentiality and integrity is really critical. Uh, and, and most companies opt to optimize for protecting their secrets, protecting the confidentiality of their information. On the OT side, the availability is the most important thing, right? And so companies are, in, are optimizing the OT protection to keep the systems available. And often that means not patching. Uh, that often that means not introducing changes. Some of these 
systems that control pipelines, they may have a single patch window once a year, if, if at all, to protect the, to, to be able to go and make changes within uh, a particular controller or valve uh, or system controlling a controller or valve. But availability is, is really the optimal uh, thing that, that people are optimizing on that front. We have Brian, Dave, and Bob for the full show. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. This is Behind the Markets. We're talking about the threats that come from these, to the infrastructure, the pipelines like Colonial that was breached. Um, Brian, if we could kick it back to you. As you look at the infrastructure, we hear about all this new Biden infrastructure spending. But if you think about the major infrastructure in our country, what is at risk? What do you see most at risk to these breaches that caused the, the pipeline shutdown? Yeah. So, uh, so when we we uh, look at it, the, the obviously any, any of the critical infrastructure where uh, there can be impact to the real world uh, certainly is going to drive up, especially on the financial side, is going to drive up the financial incentive for attackers to target it. Uh, now we see uh, we see a couple sectors that are are probably the, the uh, certainly more likely to be targeted just based on their current security state. It'd be critical manufacturing. Uh, energy, uh, water, wastewater, uh, as well as also some of the commercial facilities. Uh, those are all, uh, again, often run dated uh, uh, dated technology, and certainly are, are likely to, more likely to be vulnerable and targeted. And have you seen improvements, Brian, in how those firms are thinking about it over the last few years, or what would you say the state of play is as far as defense? Yeah, no, I, I uh, absolutely. So. Uh, I, I think if you rewind the rewind uh, time five years ago, I think there was a lot of uh, head in sand. Uh, we're on a separate island. We don't need to worry about it because it's not really connected. Sort of is, but it's not really connected. Uh, and now over the over the past five years, as as enterprises have begun to modernize uh, their their uh, industrial control systems, uh, bringing them closer to the IT side, I think they're becoming more and more. Uh, uh, aware of the increased threat to those to that part of their of their business, um, I think we're still early. I think uh, I guess in a baseball maybe we're in the second inning. Uh, there's still a lot a lot of progress that's needed to really effectively protect and raise the bar on these critical systems. Uh, but uh, we, we are see, certainly at clarity. We've seen a a, a really significant uptick uh, in interest uh, and companies reaching out to us for help to be able to protect those critical control systems, which certainly gives us uh, confidence that, uh, that people are becoming more aware, more, more in tune with the fact that these threats are real and that they need to take action to protect. They can't, they can't uh, continue to think that they're on an island and, and separate and that they need to take action to be responsible and ready for, ready for the next uh, dark side attack uh, to the environment. Yeah, no, no, that's, I was just going to follow up there on, on the government kind of, uh, influence on this. And Bob, you mentioned earlier, uh, one of the things they probably did right was they, they got the FBI involved, law enforcement involved in this attack pretty early. What else, as we think about this infrastructure plan and other things, where should the government be getting involved here to help protect these firms? Obviously, they're private enterprises, but what else should the government be doing around that to help uh, protect the nation? Yeah, so the the government's role in security generally uh, has been pretty consistent over the last couple of decades, right? And and what the government generally does uh, is number one, it passes regulations uh, in critical infrastructure sectors. So, uh, you know, NERC and FERC uh, in the energy sector, uh, the various regulators in the financial sector, uh, the telecom sector. So there are uh, standards that are promulgated by the government regulatory agencies there. 
Uh, then there are also <clears throat> uh, technical standards which are formulated uh, for government agencies by NIST. But those regulations tend to be very widely adopted also in the commercial sector. So the government uh, is leading by example by creating these standards and by requiring adherence to the standards in government purchasing. Uh, and uh, and then uh, the third uh, thing that the government does uh, is it does a lot of information sharing uh, and outreach and assistance, right? So you look at CISA um, <clears throat> and you look at the, the various uh, government information sharing initiatives around uh, security threat uh, indicators. <clears throat> um, so all, all of those things uh, are uh, pretty robust at this point, uh, but they're not uniformly uh, strongly adopted in the various critical infrastructure sectors, right? So the defense industrial base, the banking sector, and the telecom sector are pretty advanced in terms of working with government uh, in these areas. Some of the other uh, sectors, uh, you know, energy, state and local governments, and, and others – uh, have smaller budgets for technology, and they have smaller staffs, and so they are, uh, you know, still uh, still working on coming up uh, the curve. Let me ask Bob a, a question on you know teammates' perspective. I mean, you guys do a lot of venture capital investing. You also do it working on sort of the public companies as well. How as as thinking about the investment angle on all of this? I mean, there's the Companies that you want to fence on, like, you know, Dave thinking about protecting wisdom tree from outside attackers. But then there's also like, well, as, as an investor, this is a major trend. Um, how is teammate investing around this? What are the types of technologies you guys are thinking about from a venture capital perspective to start maybe? And then we'll go to some of the public markets, too. Sure. Um, so uh, we actually published a paper uh, late last year, the teammate cybersecurity brief which described the trends that we are looking at as the security market evolves. And uh, we picked seven trends. I'll, I'll list each of them, and then I'll tell you maybe a little bit about three of them that are relevant to the topic we're talking about here today. So we are looking at cloud security. We're looking at security of things, which broadly is operational technology security, the sort of stuff that Clarity uh, works on. Uh, we are looking <clears throat> at privacy and digital trust. We are looking at resilience and recovery. Uh, we're looking at the emergence of the perimeterless world, you know, the disappearance of the of the uh, uh, sort of firewall-based, uh, you know, enclave architecture of the enterprise uh, with the increasing adoption of cloud services and SaaS services. Uh, we're looking at smarter security, which is the augmentation of human intelligence on the defense side by automated uh, systems. Uh, and we're looking at what we call shift left, the the uh, <clears throat> incorporation of more and more security controls into the development process of uh, software and technical systems so that uh, by the time they hit the field, uh, they need fewer externally imposed controls. And, and of those, I would say, <clears throat> in terms of, of ransomware, uh, the, the, the big ones are uh, resilience and recovery, uh, security of things uh, protection, and then smarter security. Because, you know, once an attack starts, it moves very, very fast. And the ability of your technical systems 
to help you uh, digest the information about the attack and respond quickly and accurately to it is increasingly important. And and How these are. You, go ahead, Dave. Sorry, Jamie. I was just going to ask. Going back to the dark side example, um, I'm interested to know: is there anything we you could do as a business to deflect unwanted attention? There. I mean, it seems like these these gangs come up with target lists of companies that probably can pay, and then go after them. And from what I read, Dark Side had a somewhat altruistic side, they didn't go after hospitals, they didn't go after certain types of organization, but who knows, you know, what they would do. Is there anything businesses can do to deflect that attention or get more information on, on how to think about it? So, uh, so yes. Um, so as, as you observe, these guys do their homework, right? So if you are a company uh, with weak controls uh, and strong profits, uh, it, then, you know, there's enough information out there that uh, that these guys can do their research and find you and, and decide on that basis whether to make you a target. <clears throat> uh, certainly, uh, you know, one of our pieces of advice is don't poke the bear, right? Uh, you you uh, don't want to say uh, anything antagonistic and derogatory to, you know, any of these uh, any of these groups. You also don't want, you know, when one of your competitors suffers a breach, you don't want to come out and say we're much better than them. You know, that would never happen to us because, uh, number one, you look dumb if it does. Uh, but number two, you know, sometimes people take this as a challenge. Right. So don't poke the bear. <clears throat> um, and uh, and then, uh, you know, prepare. Right. Uh, you want uh, you you have to have in the back of your mind the idea that your defenses might not be 100% successful and you have to have thought in advance about how you are going to respond uh, if there is an incident. Uh, in terms of, of where to go to learn more about this, um, I, would, uh, I would cite a couple of resources. Uh, so uh, CISA uh, has uh, a ransomware guide CISA, CISA, is the government agency responsible for responding, among other things, uh, to ransomware. Uh, that's excellent. <clears throat> uh, there, the Institute for Security and Technology, IST, has recently published their ransomware task force report with a set of recommendations on how society and government should respond to this going forward. And then <clears throat> uh, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, has a set of three what they call special publications, SP 1800-11, SP 1800-25, and SP 1800-26, which provide detailed guidance for how to structure a company's systems to have high integrity and be resilient uh, to ransomware. And I, I think all of those are, are uh, excellent resources, and they're, they're not, uh, you know, uh, commercial propaganda. They're, you know, put out by neutral organizations with real expertise. We're talking with Bob Blakely of Team 8, Brian Dumphy of, of Clarity, and Dave Yates, Chief Information Officer at WisdomTree. Uh, Dave, there's this quote that people are like the weakest link of all these situations, that the systems might be in place, but all it takes is clicking on an email. What What do you what do you do for, I mean, how do you think about training people to prevent these types of breaches internally? How, how do you think people can get better at preventing their people from becoming targets? 
Yeah, so I I'm, would love to hear Brian and Bob's comments on this as well, but um, it, training and repetition around avoiding some of the, the obvious threats is, is what we tend to do at Wisdom Tree. We obviously have technical controls on our systems, uh, but unfortunately, like you mentioned, people are usually the weakest link. So if you get one of these emails, like the one we were talking about earlier from USAID, you might actually trust that source because it comes from a valid email address, and even actually in that case, the domain would probably check out and everything. Uh, the person receiving it, if they're not expecting it, should probably just delete it. And that's what we would train our, our employees to do, because that tends to be the number one way uh, you get infected with ransomware and other things is clicking links and emails or opening attachments that you didn't expect. Uh, but I'd love to hear from Brian and Bob, are there other things that you you would advise companies to do to train their staff to not be the weakest link? Yeah, do you, uh, Brian, do you want to start or would you rather have me start? Go for it. <clears throat> so I, I think, uh, um, Dave, uh, the word that you use that I think is most important there is repetition, right? The, the, uh, you don't want to have training uh, that is going to tell people, oh, if something strange happens, you know, sit back and do deep thinking about it. You want people's natural uh, repetition instincts to cause them to do the right thing. And the way to do that <clears throat> is to have a set of robust processes with good controls built into them that people execute over and over and over again uh, so that they become accustomed uh, to doing the right thing. And when I say robust controls, I mean things like, uh, you know, so people might be tempted to click a button saying, you know, download this extension or something like that, which turns out to be hostile, right? Well, uh, maybe don't let most people download extensions, <clears throat> right? Configure their systems properly to let them do their jobs, uh, at, you know, as they come out of the box and, and control the risk of installing bad stuff. And people might be tempted to share their password with somebody they think is the help desk. Well, that works if a password is the only thing that's protecting your account. If you have good multi-factor authentication, then stealing a password doesn't uh, get you into the account and you're much safer. So I would say robust processes <clears throat> with, uh, with multiple controls between you and a bad outcome, uh, strong repetition, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, do, do definitely impress upon people uh, the importance of the security task. Thinking live, Dave, uh, Bob, Bob's teammate is a team of, of that brings an attacker's perspective. They have a lot of former people who are on the offense. It, it feels like we almost need to be attacking ourselves and seeing who fails the test with a lot of clicks. I don't know if we've had an attacker's perspective internally. Well, so I, I, so I would say that's super uh, important. In fact, if there's one piece of advice that people take away from the podcast today, I would say do response exercises is that piece of advice, right? Practice for what you are going to do if there's an incident, know who you're going to call, uh, know where your tools are, know what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, uh, you know, and just practice, 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 right? The, and because if you're not used to being attacked, uh, the the initial uh, inclination is to panic, uh, and that rarely helps. That's great. Well, Brian, would you add anything to that advice uh, that you typically give your clients, the top things to do? 
Yeah, so so while cyber education is always, uh, I think, a part of any security program, uh, the reality is no matter how much you train, no matter how much you test, so, someone's going to come in early in the morning, not have their coffee, and they're going to click on the link. Um, and so and, and I think Bob hit it well, is like train, 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 test, but you have to complement your people side of the house with those technical controls. Uh, so understanding what systems are in your environment, uh, being able to make sure that you can patch those on a frequent basis is a must. Uh, every one of these, almost every one of these attacks uh, ultimately is exploiting known vulnerabilities, known issues that are fixable. Uh, and so companies need to be able to patch. Uh, but the reality is, especially even more so in the industrial side, oftentimes you can't patch everything at the time you want. And so this is where, again, you, it's a set of complementary controls. So if you're patching 80% of your systems, being able to have strong network segmentation, controlling who can talk to who, uh, setting up gate, uh, uh, choke points for uh, the communication so the attacker can't move around un, un, uh, uh, unmitigated is, all, is absolutely another control that a company needs to be able to put in place. And being able to have threat detection uh, to complement that as well is, is also a must. Uh, there was a question earlier about, like, can you reduce your chances of being targeted? Yeah, sh sure, you can. Uh, it's, it is far better to assume you're going to be targeted and get ready for it. Implement your controls. Don't assume you can reduce your, your likelihood. Implement your controls. Get ready for the attack. Put as many controls in place as you can to make it really hard. But you even need to assume that those are not going to be good enough. And so that's where having instant response, planning, uh, testing, running through those procedures. Again, we don't, we don't know what Colonial did or didn't do before the attack. Uh, I know there's some people questioning why it took so long to respond. Obviously, we only have partial details. Uh, now, if they had been planning ahead, ahead, I mean, well, again, we don't know if they, what type of planning they did, but if, if they were, maybe they would have had a faster shutdown of that pipeline and also, also faster recovery steps. Again, we don't know. Maybe this was the best case recovery of, of that pipeline. Uh, and so, but, but the key is plan, test your procedures on a fairly frequent basis uh, and, be ready, and be ready for it. That's great advice. And um, I, I'm certainly taking away things to think about for Wisdom Tree. Um, Jared, I don't know if you've got any other questions on this. Bob, as, as you think through any sort of final things on there's there's a in terms of the companies out there servicing this, we have a few minutes left. But you walk through your seven themes for your from your cybersecurity brief. How do you think about identifying the right companies that are if you're looking to not just be defenders, but maybe go on the offense as an investor? How are you thinking about evaluating companies that are in the public domain here for for this for this space? Yeah, so you know the the way we uh, look at the market is, uh, um, you know, that like uh, I think it was Wayne Gretzky's advice: don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck is going to be. Uh, and so what we try to do is keep our eye on the the trends in the market, and the trends are very much that more and more functionality is moving to the cloud. The sort of perimeter network architecture uh, is uh, is increasingly not the dominant architecture of IT systems. Uh, IT systems are, are increasingly not the dominant population of devices, right? There are more and more OT devices uh, out there. Uh, and... <clears throat> the uh, uh, the necessity because because of the attack landscape 
the necessity to be able to be resilient and to recover if something bad does happen to you uh, is increasingly critical. So, so what we try to do is we try to look at uh, companies whose uh, product mix uh, and whose strategic initiatives are aligned with those developments, right? They are looking to uh, implement controls in the cloud. They are looking to implement controls on OT systems that are as robust as the ones in IT systems. They are looking to put products in the marketplace that help you with resilience and recovery, not just with prediction and, and defense. Uh, gotta, so, so that's how we look. That's, this has been great. Um, we're running out of time here, but Brian, Bob, Dave Yates, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. It's been a great discussion on a really timely issue on cybersecurity going into Memorial Day weekend. Everybody have a great long weekend. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer today, Chris Tukes. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.